WMCHD3 Detroit, KMPS HD3 Seattle, WBMX HD3 Boston, and on AOL Radio and Yahoo Launchcast. Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now 248 545 Soul. New SkyRadio.com. What do governments really know about monsters? Were there Bigfoot corpses in the wake of the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens? Was the Montauk monster the result of some government experiment going amok? Hey there, and welcome to the 466th broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those extremely strange questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. So this evening, we welcome back one of the most credible people in sometimes an incredible field. If And if you'd like to put in your own two cents about this incredible field, our call-in number this evening is 248-545-7685. Again, that is 248-545-7685. Nick Redfern is the author of many books on UFOs, aliens, Bigfoot, werewolves, the Loch Ness Monster, paranormal phenomena, conspiracy theories, psychic powers. But it reminds me of, of the... Uh, job interview of Winston Zettimore and the go, do you believe in this, do you believe in that? Yeah. Anyway, uh, and he also writes about Hollywood scandals. Okay, well, there we are. The crickets are after us again. Anyway, to round things out, uh, what we're talking about tonight is dealt with in Nick's new book, just released in May, Monster Files, a look inside government secrets and classified documents on bizarre creatures and extraordinary animals. Nick is a regular contributor to UFO magazine, Paranormal Magazine, and the Fortean Times. He has written for the British-based Daily Express and People Newspapers, Military Illustrated, Dear Old Fate Magazine, along with a weekly column, Lair of the Beasts, from Mania.com, and he maintains a large number of blogs. He has appeared on innumerable international television and radio shows and has himself tracked monsters all over the world. He also runs the American office of the British-based Center for Fortean Zoology, the world's only full-time organization dedicated to investigating mysterious creatures, otherwise known as cryptids. A native of the UK, Nick lives in Texas. So Nick Redfern, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thanks for having me back on, guys. Oh, it's always a pleasure. So Nick, let's get right down to brass tacks here. Does the Pentagon have Bigfoot on ice? Well, you know, this is probably one of the most controversial um, scenarios, you know, regarding cryptozoology, which is sort of the official title for the study of animals that science and, and regular zoology doesn't acknowledge existing. Now, this particular story about Bigfoot uh, goes back to 1980, uh, May 1980 specifically, when Mount St. Helens in Washington State suffered this huge volcanic eruption, which essentially sent plumes of dust, dirt, and just debris, just thousands of feet into the air. And to give you an idea of the, the blast itself, it, uh, it flattened 200 and 50, um, roughly 200 square miles, excuse me, of forest land uh, surrounding the mountain. And the blast speed as, it, as the volcanic eruption occurred, horizontally from the mountain across the forest, it, it shot across at 250 miles an hour. That was the wind speed. So it gives you an indication of the sort of sheer power that was involved. And um, unfortunately, a lot of people who lived in the area um, refused to heed the warnings to leave, and roughly 60 people were killed. And, um, of course, the emergency services went in, you know, to lend assistance and help rebuild the area and rescue people who were injured as well. 
um, and this involved, you know, the regular emergency services, but military personnel from local military bases in the area, or the ones closest to it at least, went out to also give um, help and assistance and, and aid in the recovery program. And over the course of, well, literally in months, just a matter of months after Mount St. Helens occurred in May 1980, and right through till last year, we've now got somewhere in the region of about 15 or 16 retired military people who've come forward and talking about their knowledge of, of Bigfoot creatures having been found dead on the mountain after the explosion. Now, yes. if Bigfoot exists, you know, as a flesh and blood animal, that's not out the question because we know that officially... Uh, when Mount St. Helens um, erupted, that more than a thousand elk were killed in the explosion and literally tens of thousands of smaller animals. And what's interesting is that Mount St. Helens actually has a long history of strange creatures reported from, it, from, the, uh, from the mountain itself. For example, you can go back to the times of the English settlers and um, they talked about how the, the Native Americans of that era had legends of hairy giant people that lived on Mount St. Helens. Um, mountain Helens, you know, it's just a, a massive, heavily forested uh, mountain. Um, and in the 1920s, there was sort of like a violent confrontation between loggers and woodsmen um, whose uh, cabins were attacked in the middle of the night over the course of several nights in one particular area by what were described as like these large, lumbering, shadowy creatures. And the actual area of Mountain Helens where this occurred has since become known as Ape Canyon sort of mm. celebrating the story. So in other words, you have this long tradition. But these various military people who've come forward have talked about their knowledge of like large double rotor military helicopters coming in and hovering over certain areas with large nets hanging down and soldiers on the ground loading these dead, hairy, humanoid creatures into the nets and then them being carried away, presumably to the nearest base, because you know there's no way they would fly something like that over a open territory. Um, and as I said, we've now got somewhere in the region of 15 or 16 retired people all talking about this from their own unique perspectives, which actually adds weight to it. You know, if they're all telling exactly the same story, it'd be suspicious, but they're telling it from their own unique angle and, you know, where they were at the time and what they knew about it. And um, so it's like a fascinating story because it leads into the idea of, you know, these bodies having been secretly autopsied. But I guess the most intriguing thing, or one of the most intriguing things, is why it would be subjected to secrecy in the first place. That's you know, why not ask. just admit it? Because it would just be a zoological mystery, not one for national security reasons, you know. But the more we look into it, as I point out in the book, there are a lot of weird stories that, although it goes down controversial paths, where we have linkages between Bigfoot sightings and UFO activity and people talking about Bigfoot vanishing in a flash of light, you know, as if it was something that sort of straddled the flesh and blood world and, and the UFO world and the paranormal world as well. Mm -hmm. So maybe that might have something to do with the reasons why much of this has sort of been hushed up, the idea that, you know, something's been discovered that pushes it away from just a zoological mystery and possibly something that, you know, is of more of interest to, to the official world, so to speak. Well, this is what we hear, uh, and, and our own work has led to the conclusion, at least by us anyway, that, that whoever it is, whether it be governments or something else, is very interested in the paranormal from the viewpoint of um, militarizing it, yes. weaponizing it, uh, turning it into uh, a 
power source, literally for, for the generation of power, by using particularly um, what we have found as the multiverse kind of scenario, uh, energy exchange, things of this kind. So, I don't know, that, that sort of, ma what you say kind of matches up with what we... Well, sort of yeah, I mean, well, that's interesting because, I mean, one of the theories that I've heard from a number of people is that the military is less interested in Bigfoot, per se, but more interested in the way these creatures reportedly, according to the witnesses, sort Precisely. of vanish you know, in and out of our reality. And I, th I think what the thrust of the research is is not so much what Bigfoot is, although that's certainly a significant part of it. It's the means and the ways by which it flits in and out of our reality. You know, if you could, if you could sort of duplicate that and understand it, that from a military advantage perspective, you know, if you could zip in and out of reality and kind of jump from one place to another, that would give you a huge advantage. So I think it's things like that. It's like the byproduct of how the creatures act yeah well, no, well we're not more the driving force well exactly we're not cryptid experts by any means but we we, we have yeah. uh we do sort of live among this 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 multiversal reality in even in ghost research or anything else and it really really rings true with us well what better reason to keep it secret what what if people knew these things are kind of right next to us all the time and just you know it's that that's <laughs> probably the greatest secret of the age well um yeah no oh, well i was i was um I was going to ask about uh, League Monsters, but I don't know if we wanted to get into, uh, get into this well, a little yeah, early. Well, we, we could do a transition there, because Lake Monsters... Um, well, yeah, I mean, like, look at Loch Ness Monster. the same it's... thing going on with yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Is... Same process, same interest. So now let's take that and form that into a question for uh, Nick here. Well, I was going to ask so... one thing first. You form the question on that, I'll ask something else. Got it. Okay. Nick, have you, you, know, you yourself have hunted these things all over the planet. Have you yourself ever seen Bigfoot? Um, you know, I actually haven't. It's one of these situations where I think, you know, unless you're really lucky, you've got to be in the right place at the right time to actually experience something. And, of course, you know, when you look at the sheer vastness of some of it, like the Pacific Northwest woods, yeah. I mean, you know, you're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of square miles of nothing but forest, you know, that hardly anybody ever goes into. So, you know, I think with the best will in the world... Unless you're in the right place at the right time or you see something by accident or, you know, you're having sufficient funding to sort of spend six months out just trekking around, you know, period, then chances are you're not going to see something. But, I mean, I have come across things like footprints and heard a lot of weird noises that, you know, in areas where Bigfoot's been seen that, that don't sound like regular animals. So, you know, I sort of can't roll out something's occurred, but, you know, I've not sort of had that definitive thing where, you know, Bigfoot's charged across the road in the woods, you know, that, that sort of thing. Well, my main experience with that sort of thing was in England in 1989. I was sent there by a certain magazine who remain nameless. <laughs> was uh, hosted by some people who were um, interested in the, uh, what was called the Beast of Exmoor, which oh, I'm yeah. sure you've heard of, uh, sort of a, yep. a big cat sort of thing, which is native to this country but not there and uh, my, my ultimate conclusion after interviewing police officers farmers witnesses and, and you know as you know it's in devon a very north devon very rural area uh i thought it was just a big cat i could just picture someone in 70 or i should say what was it 66 when they passed the animals act sorry i showed 76 uh, when parliament passed the animals act so some old colonel from the raj or something you know, releasing some <laughs> black panther that he had 
and yeah. uh, interbreeding with local animals. You know, zoologically, it's very interesting. But the the, well, the magazine was all upset that I didn't come back with uh, you know Loch Ness or Bigfoot or something like this. <laughs> in any case, I feel your pain on that one. So uh, we are getting ready to take a break. Well, what's our okay. time? Yeah, okay. And uh, we, you were listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Van Eno on CBS New Sky Radio, and our wonderful guest, the great Nick Redfern. We'll be back shortly to talk about cryptids and other such things and what may be known about them by various governments. Stick with us. Enlighten. Empower. Enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New Horizons. No boundaries. Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOL. NewSkyRadio.com. Believe. And you better believe it is back to 
Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno with our wonderful That's guest, Nick Redfern. And we are going to get into some, some pretty crazy topics here with uh, Lake Monsters once we finish up with Bigfoot. Okay, so, uh, Nick, did you want, before we leave the subject of Bigfoot, at least for now, uh, did you want to comment uh, once again on um, <clears throat> what exactly the government might know? Well, yeah, I think, I mean, for me, you know, I've looked into a lot of Bigfoot cases, and I'm absolutely 100% convinced that Bigfoot is more than just a North American unknown ape. You know, I, I don't think it's just like the equivalent of a Congo gorilla or anything like that. I, I think it seems to have UFO overtones, paranormal overtones, and I think this is what interests official agencies, because if Bigfoot, as some of the evidence suggests, sort of flits in and out of our reality... It may be that Bigfoot is investigated, not so much be, be just because of what Bigfoot is, but to try and determine what technology is used in being able to sort of like jump from this reality to another or, you know, sort of um, distort time and space and zip in and out of here and there. That would give whoever possessed that technology incredible advantages over, you know, the enemy or whoever. So yeah. I think I think that's why Bigfoot is, is secretly watched and studied for the... For the byproduct and the spin-off of what it actually is able to do. Sounds like the most likely possibility to me. And now we'll move on to Ben's favorite subject. Ah, yes, lake monsters. <laughs> so we does the uh, U.S. military hide anything about lake monsters, too, or just Bigfoot? Well, you know, the, the lake monster angle is an interesting one because I found reports from both the United States and the U.K., and, you know, they, I, I found no evidence that they were... The, the program sort of ran in tandem and, and together, but they both used lake monsters in, from the same perspective. That's to say that lake monster stories were actually created to hide military programs. And I talk about one particular case in the United States where in the 1940s and 50s, um, when experiments were being done um, in various lakes using small submersibles like remote-controlled uh, excuse me, like submarines, which were in test stage, but they were sort of highly advanced and sophisticated, and this was, you know, the height of the Cold War, and they have to be tested somewhere. But uh, when people started reporting seeing these sort of strange-looking, fast-moving things just breaking the surface of the lake, the, the military actually started spreading stories of lake monsters in the area, <laughs> which sort of gets into very bizarre territory where, you know, you have a situation where the military isn't so much investigating monsters, on its own at least, but also inventing monster stories, you know, as a means to cover up um, something else. And I also found evidence of this in Wales, um, mm -hmm. the country, not the animals, Wales, right. um, where um, way back before the First World War and the, the British military was uh, trying to determine if they could train seals to basically charge through the water at German battleships and they would be the seals would be have explosives strapped to them you know sort of like a, a suicide mission mm. and a number of these um experiments using the seals were undertaken in a place called lake bala in north wales and because the the locals soon got wind of the fact that something strange was going on and late at night you know they'd see all these powerful lights and military people standing by the shore and these they couldn't tell what they were, you know, the villages, but they could see these large animals swimming around in the water, which were the seals being trained. But when the locals heard about it, again, the military, the British Royal Navy, started spreading stories that it was a lake monster to hide the fact that, you know, they didn't want the story getting back to the Germans. So you have this weird situation where, 
you know, the very existence of monster legends, you know, they're not just investigated, but agencies realize how they can manipulate these legends as a cover for something else. And that happened a couple of times, at least, with, with late monster traditions and, and legends. That's very interesting. I'm thinking, however, of a number of small lakes in um, Ireland, particularly, yeah. uh, even Iceland, where we were last September. Oh, yeah. The, uh, the stories that have risen from there, they, they don't seem to be near any military bases or don't seem to be even large enough for any oh, such no. experiments. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is an important thing to point out. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that there are genuine lake monsters, but I think it's like a lot of these things that when stories develop based on real events, those real events can then be manipulated for something like a cover story. But the important thing I would want to stress to the listeners is that just because military agencies may have fabricated some lake monster stories to hide their own actions and activities, that doesn't take away the fact that there are very strong and good, credible cases, you know, where strange creatures have been seen, like Loch Ness, and as you point out, a lot of these smaller Irish lakes and... Um, a lot more are in Scotland, you know, then you've got like Ogopogo and Champ and things like mm -hmm. that. And, you yeah. know, I'm firmly convinced that whether they're unknown animals or, you know, surviving creatures from previous eras that we believe become extinct, I don't know. You know, maybe it could be a combination of things, but, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that a lot of late monster stories are based on undeniable sightings of real creatures. But it is funny that you bring up the military aspect. Uh, I, in my own military training, there was a certain intelligence component. And we're actually told you know, that there are ways uh, and how to do it of, of taking what people already... You know, obviously, lake monsters weren't part of the discussion, but uh, nevertheless, things people already believed or things that were generally believed, whether they were true or not, and how to manipulate them and transition into something else that you wanted people to do. So that... that, that certainly rings true again. Mm -hmm. um, what about other governments? Uh, now, you say the British government keeps a file on sea monsters. Is that true? Yeah, that's actually 100% uh, true. The file itself is housed at the National Archives in a place called Kew, K-E-W, which is yeah, just on the there. fringes. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Just on the fringes of London. Yeah. And the, the National Archive is, is like the American National Archives, you know, where you've just got millions of pages of formerly classified files, which are now on public display. And you can, you know, you can actually go down there and you, you can just pour through the files, or you can review the file titles, you know, there are thousands of titles, and then see which ones are declassified and which ones aren't. And I was going through sort of this huge master list one day and found a reference to a file that was titled Sea Serpents. And... Um, which sort of caught my eye, as you could probably imagine. And mm. the file itself actually runs from roughly 1830 to 1880, so it's like a 50-year, like a half a century of files. So it's a very packed file. And um, it's filled with reports, interestingly enough, from military personnel, British Royal Navy military personnel. Um, the file was put together by the old Admiralty uh, of the British military. And... As I said, it's packed with reports covering 50 years, and most of them, interestingly enough, um, all originate from the Atlantic Ocean, and a lot of them down by the island of St. Helena, which, you know, in itself is interesting too, because it suggests maybe there was a colony of these creatures there, because the reports from that specific area span decades. Now, what's particularly notable is that, in many cases, you know, the reports weren't a vague 
things in the distance that could have been, I don't know, a blue whale or a shark or whatever. It's act, they actually talk about, you know, bear in mind this is the 18th century, so we're talking, you know, sort of warships that look like old-style galleons, you know, sort of made of wood and sails, etc. And they, But the reports talk about the, the crews and the captain just leaning over the side of the ship and seeing these gigantic creatures, when, in some cases in the files, they describe the length of the creatures as like 250 to 300 feet long, you know, which is incredible. Yeah. And with bodies like a typical serpent, like a snake, with a large head and powerful neck sort of um, surfacing and standing upright out of the water. And in a number of cases, they describe them as having almost like a mane, not like a hairy mane, but it looks like sort of strands of skin flowing down the back. And we often get that in lake monster stories as well. Um, and so, you know, when you've got credible military personnel and even the captain of the ship preparing a, you know, an official log report saying they saw creatures 250 feet long just sailing past the ship at a, at a distance of only like 50 to 100 feet, it's really, you know, it's very difficult to avoid coming to the conclusion that what they described really is what they saw, you know. Well, you know, that brings up an interesting uh, experience related to me by a friend who was at the uh, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts here. And he was off bobbing around on a research vessel as a grad student uh, in the late 60s. And they were um, off the, I guess it was the, the Peru-Chile Trench, which is one of the deepest areas of the Pacific. And they were doing a number of experiments uh, on different things and fishing. They were doing a lot of deep sea sort of things, you know, with the uh, unusual creatures that live at that depth. And so they had a large hook, uh, which weighed a lot and was made of uh, something that was titanium or chrome steel or something really hard. They lowered it into the trench. They had some data. They were trying to get, one of the things they were after were a giant squid. But something in the middle of the night grabbed that hook and uh, the, shook the whole vessel which was 178 feet long wow. uh, it they hauled it up and the hook had been straightened <laughs> and they had no idea what creature it would have to have weighed thousands of tons mm -hmm. and they had no idea what did it and uh, from what he said they never focused he never went back <laughs> but um, <laughs> there are very strange things down there and uh, governments probably know about it well let me ask you this well, I mean thing. like the this the Earth's like ocean floor is like the least explored place on the planet. Like there's yep. still 75 percent of it we don't know what's down there. Yeah, we don't know like, more about the surface of the moon. Yeah, than we do about than we do about our own oceans. Yeah, that's true. So it's um, why is is there still well there must still be resistance in the mainline zoological community against this sort of stuff. Has that loosened up at all in your experience? Am I since well, the 60s? Not really. I mean, I think it's unfortunate that two things go on. One is, you know, you, particularly within the zoological field, you have the ego angle of, well, you know, I'm the person with letters after my name, so exactly. you know, I'm the expert, and don't tell me about lake monsters or Bigfoot, there's just no way. So you mm -hmm. have that angle. The other angle that you, you're up against is very often, you know, these sort of people are also getting grants, you know, and funding... Um, for their work from organizations and universities and they just don't want to rock the boat you know Absolutely. which is kind of i view that as like the cowardly way out you know yes but because sometimes i've spoken to people in these positions who said well 
Yeah, no, maybe there is something to it, but there's no way I can go on record and say that. You know, well, run into not? that with physicists well, all the time. Yeah. So yeah, the problem isn't James. necessarily science; it's scientists very often. Yes, and it's just the fear of what their peers are going to say. Are they going to lose their funding? Which, you know, for me, it's kind of sad that they don't have the gumption and the the wherewithal just to stand up and say, "Hey, you know, maybe we should look into this." Uh, but that's like that's the same with UFOs, you know, or anything. Or I'm sure you know, ghostly activity that scientists, unfortunately, for the most part, just won't ally themselves to something controversial for fear of what the backlash is going to be, not because they're not necessarily privately interested in it. Yeah, quite true. Uh, we have another break coming up, so I don't want to ask another question just yeah. yet. Observations, Ben? Uh, well, I'm looking at a computer screen right now. and Yes, say we don't, we don't have much time. But in any case, when we come back, though, I did want to ask, uh, I suppose, come ashore and head for Russia and ask oh, a number yes. of questions about that. Oh, there are a lot oh, of yes. strange things going on, there, going on with that. And as a matter of fact, tomorrow night on our show, we're going to have uh, someone you know, I believe, Nick, uh, Mac Maloney. Oh yeah, uh -huh. yeah. He's going to be. We're going to get into some of this uh, Russian business uh, in the sense of his new book, uh, the Area Fifty One or Beyond Area Fifty One, which is really. Oh, it's a very good book, yeah. Oh, it's great. It just well, he's uh, not quite a neighbor of ours, but he, he doesn't look too far away, so we we do have him on and uh, hope to see him oh, cool. very, very soon. But in any case, you are listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS New Sky Radio, and we're talking with Nick Redfern about cryptids and what governments are anybody else might know about them and uh, maybe keeping secret and why. Very interesting discussion so far, so stick with us. We will be right back. CBS Radio The Sky and NewSkyRadio.com are presented only for entertainment purposes, and advice should not be used in place of appropriate medical, financial, legal, or other professional counseling.
Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. New SkyRadio.com. Well, welcome back, everyone. And we're having a fascinating conversation with Nick Redfern about all things cryptid and what people may know, what governments in particular may know about them. So... Nick, let's uh, let's head for Russia here, and um, I understand they know something about animal ESP in Russia. What's the deal on that? Well, yeah, this is something that's gone on for many years, actually decades, where the Soviet government, its Academy of Sciences, has actually actively um, provided funding for research into the field of ESP and psychic powers in animals. And this is actually an offshoot of sort of like the, the old Soviet Union's equivalent of the U.S. government's research into remote viewing and so-called psychic mm. spying. And so, in other words, the Soviets were sort of looking into the, the human angle of it, but as a byproduct of the research, um, they were also trying to determine if and how it worked in animals. And what the main reason was if they could understand how and why it worked in animals, then they would hopefully be able to understand how it works in people, because the problem that they face, which is also the same um, issue that affected the American research, wasn't so much that remote viewing didn't work, it did, but the problem was it couldn't be relied on to work on every single occasion, and nobody seemed to know why, you know, sometimes the remote viewers would get like the equivalent of, I don't know, like writer's block or something, you know, and that was the concern, if it was going to be used as a tool of espionage, you know, we need it 100% of the time, and that that was the problem, and that was one of the reasons why the Russians looked into this. But, I mean, the files, which have actually... You know, the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency have now released its files, uh, which were basically files put together in the 70s, um, where they were studying what the what the Russians were doing, you know, keeping, mm-hmm. keeping an eye on what the Russians were doing in this particular field. And they tell... Documents tell a fascinating story, as I said, going back to, like, the 1920s of research into sort of mind-to-mind contact between animals, dogs, and humans. That's to say, you know, the, the person would try and psychically project a command for the dog to do something, um, and then they would, you know, see if the dog would do it. Uh, what's interesting, there's actually references in there to various experiments of a psychic nature that the Russians undertook to try and determine if animals had souls and, and life after death. Hmm. For example, there are references to... Um, exper- a bit of grizzly experiments where Russian scientists would take a mother rabbit and separate them from the newborn baby rabbits and kill the babies one by one while the mother was like wired up to electrodes and you know sort of the equivalent of like a stress recording device and apparently as official records talk about that at the time the babies were killed the mother uh, made like a noticeable uh, like a peak if you like or a spike in the recordings as if it suggested that she was aware of, you know, each occasion when the when the baby was killed, which sort of, you know, is fascinating, but sort of disturbing as well, you know. And um, yes. but he opened this entire area of additional research, as I said, into the the idea of, you know, do animals have souls? Do they live on in, in some sort of, sort of form or whatever? No, it's quite true. I was involved at one point with some experiments with plants that are pretty well known. I wasn't really doing experiments, but certainly was helping. Uh, electrodes were connected to plants, and other plants were cut with scissors, the, the leaves, and they, they all 
had fits, the plants did. So wow. it seems that the biosphere perhaps is an open system, um, mm -hmm. an, an interactive system in that way. Do you think, and not to get off topic, but do you think that perhaps the fact that our instinct, uh, animal instinct, if you will, and the best of it, is educated out of us in modern society, oh, yeah. and that's why we don't, that's why many of these abilities are dormant and have to be doctored up and experimented with and otherwise... Oh, yeah, I, I don't doubt that at all. I mean, you can look back into sort of ancient times, you know, the early years of civilization, where ancient man clearly had far more of an affinity and attachment to, you know, what we would call the paranormal or the, the world around us. You know, I mean, you can go about sort of like shamanic experiences mm. you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago where it was like a, it was a regular, and still is in some place, you know, regular practice to sort of commune with higher entities by entering an altered state, whether it's via, you know, psychedelics or, you know, ingesting whatever substance. But, you know, it wasn't seen as, oh, you know, we'll just pop a few drugs. It was, it was actually because the ancients knew that there were these other realms, I think, that could be accessed in altered states. Um, and I think on top of that, you know, you look at things like stone circles and the pyramids. One of the interesting things about these locations is that they're sort of, they highly resonate in terms of acoustic frequencies. And um, again, it's clear that ancient man had some knowledge of, of these issues too. And also, you know, that the whole idea of, of life after death, which, you know, unfortunately, some people might find what I'm going to say controversial, but... Unfortunately, I think mainstream religion is, today is more about a tool of control and manipulation through fear and guilt. Mm. But in the past, it was genuinely about investigating the mysteries of, of what happens after, after death. Mm -hmm. And I think ancient man had a deep understanding of these other realms, but it was done more from a spiritual, uplifting perspective rather than ranting at people and scaring the life out of them, you know, but they, they clearly had a far greater affinity with, you know, these other realms than we do today, you know, we're just taught, we're too tied up with, you know, what we can touch and knock on, you know, and, and know it's real, you know, we've yeah. lost touch with the, that other world. Yeah. Well, there are many good religions where, you know, it's purer. Oh, but no, that, yeah, again, don't get me wrong, there are. Yeah, but yeah, the institutions do tend to take on lives of their own, and that's usually not good, but... Anyway, no. um, in the sense of uh, Yeti and Bigfoot, if we can just get back to that for a second, because there's something I sure. wanted to ask, I almost forgot. You said you suggest that there's a link somehow between the CIA and the. Does that have to do with the experiments we were discussing before, or is that something else? With with what with dogs and animals? Uh, oh no, the CIA and Bigfoot, or, or Yeti. Oh, Yeti. okay, yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, yeah, these are, this actually deals with um, documents that are surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act. That's one of the things I want to stress, that all the documents I reproduce in the book were formerly classified files that have now officially surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act. And one of the ones I talk about in the book is a State Department's document that was actually circulated to the CIA in the 1950s. And what's interesting is that it deals with legislation concerning the... Tibetan and the Himalayas equivalent of Bigfoot, which is the abominable snowman, also known as the Yeti. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about these files that the CIA received from the State Department is that although, although they're guidelines, you know, how to handle an encounter with the Yeti, it's not done from the perspective of the Yeti being like an alleged creature or this 
supposed animal or anything like that. The files actually talk about it as if its existence is, has already been verified, which is interesting because it talks about how the, um, the US government went along with the plans and programs of the Tibetan government. And it talks about how in the event somebody sees a Yeti, you must not shoot it, you must not shoot to kill it or injure it, only if your life's threatened. Um, all photographs of the creature have to be handed over to the Tibetan government. And it goes on and on like this. And as I said, it, it's not presented from the perspective of presuming the creature exists or, you know, we have no knowledge or whatever. It's literally done in the same way that, you know, you'd expect a document to be prepared on the event that somebody encountered a rare type of tiger or something, you know, and don't kill mm -hmm. it because it's an endangered species. It's just like that. And so... Um, that in itself is interesting, not so much just that the CIA was the recipient, but, you know, that the existence of the creature was almost, like I said, as a given. Yeah, or meaning on the theme of yetis. So is it true that uh, Stalin wanted to breed and train an army of yetis, or almas? <laughs> well, you know, this is a strange story. The, the, the part of it which we can prove is true, and part of it is still at the rumor mill level. But basically, the story goes back to the early 1920s and a Russian scientist named Ilya Ivanov. He was a very brilliant scientist, but he was also a highly controversial, an alternative scientist, you know, sort of like a real-life Dr. Frankenstein, where he <laughs> believed that the only way to advance science and medicine was to sort of really think outside the box. And one thing that I won't say fascinated him, obsessed him is probably a better term, um, but obsessed uh, Ivanov, was the idea of trying to crossbreed humans with apes. And specifically, by the term apes, he was thinking of chimpanzees and gorillas. Now, the Soviet government uh, did officially fund him in this research. We know that. The funding came via the um, Academy of Sciences. And in the 1920s, he uh, was given sufficient funding to travel to West Africa and where a number, or actually a large number, of female gorillas and chimpanzees were rounded up and laboratories were set up both in, in Russia, in Georgia actually, um, and in West Africa, where these experiments went ahead. And it was, you know, there's nothing like gene splicing or anything like that back then. So it was just a case of impregnating anesthetized gorillas, female gorillas and, and chimpanzees with human sperm to see if they could try and um, crossbreed these creatures. Now, the official story is that all the experiments failed. The unofficial story is that in a few rare cases and against all the odds, that sort of hideous, freakish, half-human, half-ape creatures were born. And one of the stories is that because they were semi-human, you know, they, and they survived, that they weren't killed or put down because they were part human. And they were sort of banished to the wilds of Russia and then gave rise to the claims that, oh, there's a Russian Bigfoot on the loose, you know, people not realizing it was the result of these sort of diabolical experiments. So, uh, you know, we're not sure if, if that part of the story is true. There's another part of the story that is also controversial, namely that supposedly Stalin himself had a role in it to try and create like an army of superhuman apes or, you know, uh, super ape humans, something like that. Yeah. But I guess if that was true, not much thought was given to the idea of, you know, he wanted sort of creatures with the strength of gorillas and the, the brain power of humans but you know what if you had the creatures had the brain power of gorillas and the strength of humans <laughs> you know <laughs> it wouldn't well, work out too well at that part of the story we haven't been able to verify beyond what the newspapers have said and 
where their information comes from. We hit a brick wall. Um, well, that's but there's no doubt that the experiments did go ahead, that they absolutely went ahead. Okay, well, we have to take another break right now. We'll be right back. It's Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS News Sky Radio. We'll be right back with our, our good friend Nick Redfern to continue our discussion. Stay with us. Enlighten. Empower. Enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New horizons. No boundaries. is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOL. NewSkyRadio.com. Believe. Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno with our wonderful guest, Nick Redfern. And we are going. We just uh, talked about the uh, super ape-human hybrids, yetis, almas, 
or whatever. Now we're going to get into some of uh, Nick's own memorable monster hunts. Yeah, so Nick, tell us about some memorable some... monster hunts that you yourself have done. Indeed. Hmm. Well, I've been on a lot of expeditions and treks, uh, you know, been to places like Loch Ness and, um, you know, looking for Bigfoot and lake monsters. But certainly, I think my favorite expeditions I've been on are the... Uh, various trips or expeditions, I should say, um, to Puerto Rico looking for the so-called Chupacabra. And I've been to Puerto Rico on a number of occasions, and uh, I like going there because I like Puerto Rico. You know, I like the city of San Juan. It's, yeah, it's got a lot of modern city, culture and history. Yeah. And, um, but then, you know, uh, as well, you've got the mystery of the Chupacabra, that's this sort of strange-looking creature that's sort of described as almost like a hairless monkey with these savage-looking claws and fangs, and some people talk about it having, like, a row of spikes down its head. And, and sometimes, some witnesses said it has, like, bat-like wings, sort of membrane-type wings, you know, that you would see on a, mm. on a bat. So it's very we have strange. a model of it in our library here at home. Oh, cool. <laughs> so it's a very strange-looking animal, but um, chupacabra, for the listeners who aren't aware, is basically a Spanish term for goat sucker, because... When the reports kicked off in the 1990s, um, the animals that were predominantly attacked by it were goats and small animals where reportedly significant amounts of blood were drained from the bodies. Now, on each occasion I've been to Puerto Rico, what I found most interesting is that even though the term chupacabra was sort of largely coined in the mid-90s, I've always found reports that predate um, the chupacabra by name, by decades, but it's clear we're talking about a creature, if not identical, that's extremely similar. For example, the first time I went there in 2004, I interviewed a woman named Norka who lived high in the El Yunque rainforest. And she saw a creature which, you know, we would describe today as the Chupacabra. But this was way back. She wasn't sure, but it was either night, the summer of 75 or the summer of 76. You know, so that's like 36, 37 years ago. And in the 1980s, um, you, there were other uh, mutilation-type attacks and blood draining from animals on a creature that became, or by a creature that became known as the Mocha Vampire, Mocha being an area of Puerto Rico. So, you know, I found it fascinating that when you actually sort of get the, you know, you gain the attention and the trust of the locals, they open up with a lot of these stories, and, and you're able to see that whatever this creature is, although it's only entered popular culture in the last 20 years, at a localized and sort of quieter level, sightings and reports have been going on for, you know, who knows how long, really. Yeah. It's just the name, Chupacabra, that's sort of relatively um, new addition to the mystery. Well, before we continue with that, and before we run out of time, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your website, your books, and what you're working on, and just let folks know where they can find out more about you. All right, sure. Well, well people can reach me at my blog, which is Nick Redfern 14, F-O-R-T-E-A-N dot blogspot dot com. And that also has a link to my Facebook page. Um, and people can find me, just type Nick Redfern into Facebook. And uh, I've got a few conferences coming up. One uh, Paracon conference in Kansas City in September, and then one called the Paradigm Conference in Minneapolis, in uh, last weekend, but one in October. So I'll be speaking uh, at those. And I'm working on a couple of new books, um, one more on cryptozoology and also uh, another Men in Black book, which is one of my uh, big interests. Oh, yeah, ours too, but uh, that's for another show. Well, well done. Now, before the, we leave the issue of the Chupacabra, I, I understand that they're moving now. They're no longer just in Puerto Rico or that area. They've moved into your neck of the woods in Texas and other areas. Is that true? 
Well, yeah, we get a creature that's become known as a Texas chupacabra, which are like these hail... They look like hairless coyotes, and it's given rise to the... From the skeptics, oh, they're just, you know, coyotes with mange. Mm. But they're actually not. Now, what I would stress first is that the description of the attacks, where people talk about small farm animals being attacked, and in some cases, supposedly blood-drained, that does tie in with the Puerto Rican creature. But the description's very different. You know, the Puerto Rican creature is two-legged, has these spikes down its neck. There's no doubt that these te so-called Texas chupacabra are canines. Um, you know, in some cases, we have the corpses of them. I actually got the skull of one, the, one, of, uh, one that was shot. Actually, I've got it on one of my shelves here. And DNA analysis was done, and it was shown to be coyote. But they're not just coyotes with mange. It looks like some sort of strange thing is going on with them at a genetic level. For example, um, you know, the, the jaws, the top jaw and the bottom jaw of a coyote should be uniform, but they're not. It has like this huge overbite. The front limbs are often smaller than they should be, so it has these weird kangaroo-like hopping movements instead of just like a regular trotting um, gait. Um, but the strangest thing of all is the fact that they're totally hairless, which has given rise to the idea that they have mange, which is a condition caused by a mite. And the animal loses hair, but very often in a patchy form. But it causes such intense irritation, and it's kind of like having chicken pox. You know, have you ever had that? And you just scratch and itch and itch. Mm. That's what it's like. And the animals get sick because they just scratch themselves literally to death. Now, all these Texas chupacabra, bar just one or two, it looks like they're developing totally hairless, not as a result of mange, but of some weird genetic, massively fast alteration. For the most part, there's no evidence of the scratching, the itching, you know, the skin infections that are typical of mange. They're just, they look like, you know, like we do, you know, hairless animals. And people have even seen pups with the adults, and they look exactly the same. So what we're dealing with here, I don't think, is not an unknown animal, but it's what we're dealing with is even more intriguing. It's like a spontaneous mutation within the species over an extremely short period of time, you know, which is in itself sort of, you know, very eye-opening, so to say, to say the least. You know, I understand that does ha has happened in the history of evolution. There's a very quick mutations mm. that um, can result even in, in changes that aren't noticeable, but, but do nevertheless yeah. occur. But that's uh, interesting. So, uh, well, I'm afraid we're just about out of time, Nick. Uh, it's been, thank you for a fascinating conversation. Oh, yeah. We'll be in touch off the oh, air. Oh, thanks, guys. Thank and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Well, thanks again, guys, for having me back on. Okay, oh, thank you. Good. Okay. All right, everybody, Nick Redfern, check it out. Okay, now I want you to know that you can find my books, such as they are, on Barnes & Noble Nook, e-reader, and Amazon Kindle. Check those out. Uh, also, your local bookstore can get them. Uh-oh. No, 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 we're fine, we're okay. fine. Just keep Sorry. talking. All right. Strange things come up on the screen. And because so many have requested it, we are about to embark on an audio book project for my books and for the one Ben and I are currently working on ourselves. Stay tuned for more information on that. <clears throat> so visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find over 500 free podcasts and past shows. Also, check our site at www.NewEnglandGhosts.com, where there are case studies, photos, along with articles by my dad. And if you buy my books on either of those sites, you will help us keep all those 500 podcasts free. Also on our sites, you'll find direct links to several charities Ben and I have adopted, including USA Cares and Canadian Veterans Advocacy. So many thanks to our producer, Brandon Jackson, and next week we will bring you another open line show in a uh, no-doubt vain attempt to catch up on our emails. <laughs> so send your questions to paul at com or use the question form 
at BehindTheParanormal.com. In the meantime, tune into our Boston Providence Drive Time Show on WOON, 12.40 a.m. and onworldwide.com at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 Pacific, every Monday. And we'll leave you this evening with a thought from the great New England author, Ralph Waldo Emerson. You cannot do a kindness too soon, for you never know how soon it will be too late. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time.